Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Ann Tack. Happy New Year, listeners, and boy, are we about to kick off the new year here at Top Shelf in the best possible way, because for this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of hosting author Amy Jo Burns. Amy Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of 2024. I couldn't be more excited to be on your first episode, Carol Ann. Thank you for having me. Listeners, you already know that Amy Jo Burns is the author of a compelling and critically acclaimed 2014 debut called Cinderland. Then in 2020, she made her fiction debut in an absolute knockout way with the wonderful book Shiner. And full disclosure, I loved Shiner. And so did NPR. It made their best of list in 2020. And it also has one of my very favorite first sentences in a book, but I'll leave that to you guys to find that on your own. I still think of Ren, Amy Jo. I still think of her. My gosh. And all Me too. Of- yeah. <laughs> She was awesome. She was amazing. And all of that brings us to 2024 with your brand new book, Mercury. It is on shelves right now. It's on shelves at your local library. It's on shelves at your local independent bookstore. So you guys know what to do with that. Amy Jo, I'll stop talking now. If you would, please tell us all about Mercury. Absolutely. So Mercury is set in the 1990s and it is about a roofing family and they're on a roofing job and they uncover something that they shouldn't that's hidden in the church attic that's in town. And what happens is as a result, the family secrets start to unravel and they're sent into a very necessary tailspin. And they're each wondering if what they have as a family is worth saving and whether they want to be a part of saving it. Author Matthew Quick says that Mercury shimmers with authenticity. And author Patty Callahan-Henry says, Amy Jo Burns has gifted us with a family saga replete with subtle moments that make us human, that take our breath away, and that gut us with feeling. (laughs) Boy, do authors say it way better than I ever could because I agree with all of that. And from the jump in Mercury, you give us a wonderful wonderful epigraph. It was so inviting. There's something so special about it. I couldn't, I really couldn't put my finger on it, but I was all in. Tell us about the provenance because it's pretty perfect. I came across that poet. His name is Maurice Kilwain Guevara. And I came across that in graduate school. I was taking a poetry class and he he has a book of poetry. It's called The Autobiography of So-and-So. And it is about him and his life in Pittsburgh. And I think it's it sort of half takes place in Pittsburgh and also maybe in Columbia and in the Midwest where he has lived. And he has so many poems that just cut you open. They're prose poems, basically. But I remember reading that line. It sort of is about a woman setting her table for dinner and inviting the reader in. And it stuck with me right in my chest ever since I read it. I mean, this is for going on 10 years ago now. And when I was thinking about how to set the tone for the book, I mean, with epigraphs, I think it's really tricky because basically you're handing over your own book into the hands of somebody else for when they, the first thing that they read. So I just wanted it to feel perfect. And when I was going back through that book, I found it and I said, oh, that's just perfect. And it's perfect, especially later on when um, Marley sits down at the Joseph family table for the first time, I immediately thought 
of the epigraph. And I thought, oh my gosh, here we are. And I'm the reader, me, I'm sitting at this table as well. The book left me with so many different impressions. And I kept thinking as I was reading, what is the inspiration for this story? Could you could you share that? Yes. So as I mentioned, the book is about a family of roofers. And I actually come from a family of roofers. So this is my dad, my brother, my uncles, my grandpa. That is how I grew up. It was very much part of my upbringing to have roofing in the house. And I think what probably most people don't know is that roofers are the best storytellers. They are funny. They're honest. They know how to land a punchline. And so I think I first learned how to tell stories from them from when I was really little. And when I was thinking about writing this book, I thought, man, I would love to tell it the way that they would. I would love to write a book that all of them would sit down and read it and say, I think this is one hell of a book. So that's that's where I started out with it. And I started thinking about, well, what was it about the stories that they told that I thought was so compelling? And I think what it is, is that anytime I would hear a story from my dad or my uncle about a roof, it would always be about what went wrong. You know, like huge floods in the cereal aisle of the grocery store, spilling hot tar all over the sidewalk, like just, I mean, anything that happens 50 to 100 feet up is just magnified. But all of those stories are like, this is how we screwed up and here's how we fixed it. And I thought it would be a really wonderful story to take that idea of screwing up and fixing it and apply it to a family. Because I think that's something that we can all relate to, right? We've all screwed up, but we've all had to find a a way to fix what went wrong. The particular thing with these characters, though, is that they kind of have to learn everything the hard way. So, And that's what makes a book fun to write. Mercury is based on a real place. Was that hard or easy to put this town, and I believe it's your hometown, into Mm -hmm. this fictional setting? So the name of my hometown is Mercer. It's in Western Pennsylvania. And in my first book, Cinderland, I had changed the name of the town to Mercury. What I wanted for that particular book was that people wouldn't really be able to zero in on a particular point on a map, but they would more sort of ruminate on on some of the themes of, you know, secrets and silence. So it was a landscape that was very familiar to me. And when I started writing this particular book, Mercury, I started with the characters. And as I was writing, I think because these characters were already so personal to me, there was no question in my mind that I had to set it in my hometown. And so much of the book is about what it means to belong and how we claim home for ourselves that I really wanted the book to have a very personal feel for me. I wanted to put my own skin in it. And that really comes through, I think, in some of the details. Like these are places that I remember, you know, the great house that the Joseph family lives in is based on the Victorian that my grandparents lived in when I was young. The church attic is a very real place. So what I did, because that was all sort of real, I just took characters from my own imagination and I I placed them right in that hometown and it felt right away they were at home as well. So it was really fun. I enjoyed it a lot. And I think that that personal aspect for you made it personal for me Mm. because I could visualize everything. I could see the church roof. I was there. I was walking around with them. I would like to say I was on the roof with them, but I really probably wouldn't do that in real life. Same. Can't handle it. No. (laughs) 
couldn't imagine you'd want to look up there and see any of your relatives doing roofing. That is not something that I, I would worry every single day. They made it look easy. That That's the crazy thing. They just made it look like that's no big deal. You know, you just kind of, oh, no, I'm scared of heights. I can't handle it. Yeah. I Yeah. Keeping your balance. I know they always say tighten your abs to keep your balance. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just way too many things for me to think about as far as staying grounded, so to speak, on the roof. So now you've got the roofers, you've got your town, you've got the family. When do you decide to add a mystery into this story? Was the mystery always going to be there? It was. So when I started writing this book, I was in between projects. I was in this place where I was wondering, can I even write another book? You know, I, I was I was feeling a little bit lost and I sat down and said to myself, well, if no one else ever read a book by you again, what is a book that you would like to read for yourself? And so this project completely began by something that I thought, this is something I would like to read personally. So I decided to start with a story that my father had told me. This was probably 10 or 15 years ago now, but um, he repaired the church attic and the roof in our hometown. So the church we went to, they hired him to kind of go up in there, fix the steeple, patch it up because it was leaking. And he told me the story about when he went in, he went up through the back room. It's called the counting room where they keep the money. And he climbed up the ladder and he pulled down this hatch and all these bats flew in his face. And I thought that story was so funny. And he, you know, told me about walking up into this and, and having to walk on, on a single beam. And if he sidestepped, he was going to fall through the roof. So I just, I, that story has always stuck with me about it. so fascinating to see a place that I knew so well, but he's seeing it in a way that nobody else. So he's kind of seeing the innards, right? And, and he gets up to the, to the bell tower and can see all of town. And, um, so at the beginning, I thought, I'm going to use that and I'm just going to place a body in yeah, there. Why not? When because I, as one does, right? <laughs> you know. So, so it, it, as I said, it was purely for fun. I had no idea where the story was going. And then from there, what I did is each with each chapter in the beginning, I said, well, what if I just up the ante a little bit and we see a character who knows something about it? And the most interesting thing about that is that I sat down and wrote this book from beginning to end, not having any idea where it was going to go. And usually with my books, I have to write all the pieces, move them around to sort of make a narrative arc. But this, I just wrote from beginning to end. And it was kind of fun to see if I could challenge myself as I went to tie up all the loose ends that I planted for myself in the beginning, not knowing where it was going to go. Oh, my gosh. That's a home run right there. I <laughs> I think that's amazing. As I said, the book left me with so many different impressions. My copy is, I had to give up the stickies because I was running through them too fast. So I just kept underlining everything. There's something about Mercury that reminds me a little bit of the Brothers McMullen, um, the movie that was written and directed by Ed Burns. Family dynamics, the secrets, misunderstandings, long silences, broken hearts. It's relatable to the readers. It was relatable to me, That which speaks to the authenticity that I mentioned up at the top. It also left me with such hope. It's really hard while the Josephs are going through it. And man, are they going through it? They can't see the horizon. It's very hard to claw your way out of that. And one sentence you have in here is, everyone felt lonely in the great house, even when they were together. Mm. Oh, gosh, Amy Jo, you're mm. killing me. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit. Yes. I really wanted to get across what it is like to live in a small town 
and to own a family business because it's sort of the same dynamic where you're with the same people all of the time. So not only does it happen in town, but it happens in your family as well. So that means the people that you go to church with are the people at school, are your neighbors, are the people you see at the grocery store and the post office. There's something really wonderful about that because I think it helps you not only know a place really well, but feel known in that place to kind of from birth have this huge network that's like the roots of a tree that just goes so deep. But there's also this flip side that starts to feel sometimes like entanglement if you've been with the same people since you were little and yet feel like they can't see you, feel like you can't be honest with them about things, feel like you have to hide things to be accepted. Sometimes I think in those communities, we can mistake silence for belonging or that silence is the price that we pay for belonging. And so I wanted to paint what that really feels like in that moment when you realize it, but then also just push this family to their breaking point to say, is there a better way to be? Is there a different way to be? What if you did actually say all the things you felt you couldn't say, air out all the secrets that you felt you had to keep? Would a family survive that? And if they didn't, could they find something that's better? than that, you know, what they're used to. And that line about uh, feeling alone in the great house, even when they're together, I thought, oh my goodness, because it sort of sets the tone for everything that's going to come. And I'll be honest, when I finished the book, I had some trouble letting them go. Um, Mm -hmm. Same. They're still in my heart for real. Oh my gosh. I would love to know when you write these characters and what does that development look like for you? Do you write their attributes and who they are on like a separate piece of paper. Say Shay, for example, this is his deal. These are his things. These are the things he carries. Do you weave that into the story? You know, I think I have tried before to do that thing on a separate sheet of paper. You say, this is their favorite color. This is their best memory, their worst memory. It never works for me. I wish it did because I feel like it's less chaotic than what I have to do. But for me, what works best is a series of layering where, you know, the first draft beginning to end is kind of like that sketch. And then each time I go through, I dig a little bit deeper, dig a little bit deeper. And that's why I end up doing so many drafts. But with these characters, because the town of Mercury was a real place, I just wanted to make sure there was a lot of distance between that real place and who these characters were. So I kind of gave them each a thing to start with. You know, for example, Waylon, who is the middle brother, he's scared of heights. Um, Baylor, who's the oldest brother, he's somebody who every time he comes into the room, he swears. You know, that's kind of his thing. And then so you feel like you've got a foot in the door. And then it's a lot of sitting and listening and trying to overhear conversations that they would have with each other, conversations they might have with me. So that sounds a little strange, but it is a lot of sitting in a quiet space and just sort of listening and asking myself, if I let this person talk without end, what would they say? And then once I get the sound of their voice in my head, then I can start moving them around like chess pieces and say, well, what would happen if Baylor has a fight with his dad in the basement? What would happen? What would happen if a young woman named Marley comes in and both brothers are interested in her? You know, that point in particular, what I wanted to do is throw in these things like, yeah, maybe there is a body in an attic and maybe there's a love triangle to really look at. If we took away that idea that the pressure has to be this twisty, turning plot and really think through what would actually happen if this actually happened in a small town 
I think what you're left with is, is a lot more opportunity for emotional resonance between the characters. And that's what was interesting to me in this book was thinking through how would this emotionally impact a character for better or for worse? And what do they decide to do with it? Well, bravo to you for that. I want to switch gears instead of talking about the brothers for a little while. I want to talk about Elise Joseph. Holy cow. I want her whole backstory, her Mm -hmm. choices, her lack of choices, her sisters, the relationship with her sons and Mick and Marley, even down to the paperbacks that she keeps in that attic apartment. She is something else. Talk to me about Elise Joseph. I would love to. You know, it's interesting. So the book's been out a little bit and she's the character I get the most messages about so far. Some people saying, oh my goodness, you know, you nailed this scene and this scene with this woman. Elise is somebody who... I think shows what it looks like when a woman gets her chance to make her own choices taken from her. Mm-hmm. She grows up in Illinois and basically she doesn't have a lot of choices about what she gets to do. But the trick with Elise is, is that she's not a cautionary tale. She doesn't want to be a cautionary tale. She's tough and she wants the people around her to be tough too. And she expects the other women in her life to match her emotional toughness. And so when there's other characters in the book who come to her and they're they're a little bit more emotionally vulnerable, she can't handle it. And I think so much of that speaks to what it takes for a woman to survive in a family of men, in an industry that's dominated by men, in a small town where men are propped up as the heroes. She has done what she has to do in order to survive. She has sold herself out on these are all the things in this column are right and all the things in this column are wrong. And she lives her life that way. And eventually, you know, the edges of those lines, they start to disintegrate because Elise believes that there's one right way to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And when Marley comes into her life, who ends up as her daughter-in-law, who's a lot more fluid with her ideas of what it means to love someone, they butt heads a little bit. And it's good for both of them. But I think Elise ends up feeling a little bit trapped by these boundaries that have been placed around her, but she's learning how to bust out of them. And we see a little bit of that. And for Marley, who's who's younger, she's looking to Elise as, do I want to be this kind of woman? Do I want to be this kind of mother? Or do I want to maybe be like my mother, who was a single mother, a lot more relaxed? And the truth is, there isn't one right way to be a mother. And all three of the women in this book are wrestling with that exact problem. So Elise, I think, is somebody who's had to be tough. Mm-hmm. And we start to see the price she's paid for that throughout the course of her life. She's a story, a novel unto herself. She is, you're right. And she, like, I just wanted to know about the sisters and what they thought about this whole thing. A story for another time, maybe. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's also what I find interesting and heartbreaking is the contrast between Elise and Marley's mother, Ruth. What I wanted to do with this book is to show we have this traditionally accepted family. There's a father in the house, a mother, kids, the wife is at home, the dad goes to work, and to sort of say, okay, that is maybe what traditionally we have thought of as a good family, a healthy family. And then we have something where Marley and her mother, her mother Ruth is not married, she works, they travel around, they find apartments, It is not necessarily a stable lifestyle geographically, but what they have at the core of their relationship is honesty and trust. And I wanted to put those two versions of a family side by side and to push the reader a little bit to say, which one do we think is better? 
Which one do we think is healthier? Which one is producing the kind of people who go out into the world and are able to love without fear? You know, it's not the family that is traditionally accepted. So I wanted to play with that a little bit and say, you know, all is not as it seems at this big house on the corner of the street. Right, because when they move into town, there's a lot of judgy things that are happening there. And Mm -hmm. so, wow, that's so smart that you did that. Um, Now let's talk about Mick. Right. Mm -hmm. The elephant in the room. We experience Mick as his children do, as his wife does, as his sons, as the residents of Mercury do. We get those impressions and beliefs about Mick. Boy, do we. But we never hear from Mick. Was Mick ever going to be a chapter or have his own voice? Or was he at the get go? You weren't going to use his voice. You know, from the get go, I thought he's not going to get his own chapter. And I think that's because I wanted this book to feel a little bit like the story behind the story. Mm -hmm. And in this fictional town of Mercury, everybody thinks of Mick as the hero of the story. He is a war vet. He seems like somebody who can fix anything. He plays the piano on Sunday mornings. So he has already written his own story for everybody to hear. And so I wanted to say, if we say, okay, now you get to take a backseat and everybody else who has played second fiddle to you gets their chance to shine, what might actually come forth in terms of what the real story of this family might be. So I wanted to let him sit in the back seat for a little bit. <laughs> I A great choice. In fact, there's a line in Shiner. I hated this about our life in the hills. Mountain men steered their own stories and women were their oars. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, when I read how Mick was progressing, I thought of Shiner. Yes. So <laughs> I thought, oh, look, she's doing that again. It was great that that worked out that way. He plays the piano. Like I had no, mm-hmm. when I think of Mick, I don't think of him as having a creative. Yeah. I don't see him as create. I don't know why. So then all of a sudden he starts plunking the keys and I'm thinking, what the heck? So I will tell you, I do think that there's probably a fair stereotype out there about what a roofer might do in their spare time. My grandfather, though, was an excellent piano player. So that's kind of where that detail came from. My grandfather also did lots of crosswords. He was that person that you couldn't really pin down, but was very smart. My father, another roofer, is probably one of the most well-read people that I know. So one of the really fun things about getting to tell this story is that I am lucky enough to have a first row seat into the lives of these really incredible men who do not think twice about driving into downtown Pittsburgh and getting on the top of these roofs, of these huge commercial buildings. They don't think twice, but then they come home and my dad opens up his World War II history book that he's reading at the time or whatever it is. And so they're just fascinating people. And the women are in their lives are equally fascinating. They are entrepreneurs, they're homemakers. You know, they run the insurance end of the business and the payroll and they take care of the kids. And so it's, it's, these are people that are really, they're not jack of all trades. The truth is they're master of a lot of different trades. And I feel very lucky that I got to see that as a kid. My mom and my dad pull off so many amazing things all at once. And I think from my perspective, when I think of Mick, it wasn't that I didn't think he wasn't capable as being a professional roofer. That wasn't that. It was more of because we get these glimpses into his personality. Mm-hmm. He just never struck me as the type of guy to be playing the piano. Like I didn't see that part of him. 
You know what I think it is? I think he likes to perform. Oh, he, he sure does. Good he, heavens. He likes to be this, oh, you don't think a guy can play the piano? Well, let me show you. That is, that's money in the bank for him. And, and you know, there's this line in the book where Marley asks Waylon, why don't you play the piano? And Waylon says, my dad likes being the only one who knows how, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable. All of those insights into Mick. I almost want his backstory, but I'm like, nah, I I really want Elise's instead. (laughs) Yeah, this is, that's a good note. I mean, she, she definitely, and that's the thing about these characters. I feel like they, they each deserve their own book in a way because they're really wonderful people and they've got really terrible flaws, but truly, I mean, who doesn't, you know? (laughs) This is podcast is not long enough to list mine. That's just. Same, same. And that's why these characters feel real because I put a lot of my own flaws and my own mistakes and regrets right into my character so that when I'm writing them, I feel compassion for them and I feel like I can judge them a little bit, you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's for sure. Um, the other thing, Mick, what a guy. Um, mm-hmm. I love that Mercury takes place in the 1990s. It starts mm-hmm. off in 1990 and there are so many terrific references to that time, Arsenio Hall, which I thought was so funny. It, it sort of grounded me in yeah. the time frame. You mentioned mixed Rolodex, which, oh my gosh, I still have mine from when I worked yeah. at UBS yeah. Securities. There are 90s references throughout the book. How fun was that to include that? I loved that. It was probably my favorite thing about this project. I think in a lot of ways, this book was by far the most fun to write. And that is because I said it in the 1990s. And And so I started out, most of the book, I had a little bit here and there. And then in my final drafts, I went through and said, okay, really, what could I add that's going to ground people? Because it does move around in time a little bit. And then really, it started a lot for me with music. I feel like when you hear a certain song, it just takes you somewhere. And that's what I I really wanted to do with this book was say, you know, Roxette was on the radio when (laughs) Marley and her mom are driving into town. And I just feel like that sets mood and you see these roofers on the roof. And I thought, that's what I... I want the reader to carry that feeling into the beginning chapters of the book because it's a little bit of nostalgia, but it's also, there's something really beautiful about that time, especially in Pittsburgh, the area, because they were going through a lot of changes and the city was like, are we done for? What are we without steel? And I wanted to mirror that a little bit in the Joseph family for them to say, well, what are we if we're not roofers? You know, and and for them to ask, is our best behind us? Or if we break this down, could we build something better instead? And that's exactly what Pittsburgh did. The whole book is chock full of insightful and beautiful, beautiful sentences. One of my favorite things to do is participate in the Sunday sentence hashtag on Twitter or X. And one sentence I shared is from Marley. Marley is being asked, if she's a Presbyterian, because the church um, group is really very pronounced. It's where everyone congregates, you know, beautiful scenes there. But so Marley has asked this question. She asks if she, she gets asked if she's Presbyterian and she gets flustered because she can't really think of an answer. The sentence in her head is she said her mother told her they belong to the Church of the Holy Comforter, which meant they used their Sunday mornings to sleep in. <laughs> And I should have seen that coming, but the comforter part of that really made me think, oh, like the... Yeah, that's something um, my husband says, you know, when we oversleep on Sundays. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, kudos. When I posted that on social media, onto Twitter, uh, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, I get that reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was pretty funny. That was that was shared a lot. But then there's also the heartbreaking sentences. There's one about Waylon. And oh, my gosh, Waylon. He says, for the first time, he looks at the rest of his life without flinching. And I'm I'm not going to tell, say too much about why that's happening. But a few lines later, he says, Waylon hadn't realized until Marley came to Mercury that he'd been dreading the rest of his life since before he could remember. Mm. Waylon has my whole heart. All of these brothers, there's three brothers in the Joseph family, and they have all been taught that to save their father, Mick Joseph is to save the family. Mm-hmm. So before they're even able to remember, their mother has been crafting them to protect the family because she knows that Mick is a wild card and he can't really be relied upon. So she is raising her three boys to not be anything like him. So they feel it in their hearts, even if they can't really articulate it or remember it from, from their youth. And Waylon in particular, he's got such a sensitive heart And he has never even asked himself if he wants to roof, if he likes it, if he might like to do something else, because all he wants to do is take care of his parents. All he wants is for his mother to be able to release the breath that it seems that she's been holding for 25 years. And that, because he's such a loving person, that is what motivates him, right? But then he meets Marley, who is sort of like, I am not going to put any pressure on you to be a certain way. And then he realizes, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was a way to be, right? He didn't know that sort of freedom existed. So I think Waylon really captures the wonderful thing about family loyalty and the sometimes crushing thing about those loyalties is that sometimes you don't even know the burden you've been carrying because you have always had it. Yeah, just just beautiful sentences there. When you are writing the book, did you have a different title other than Mercury? This book had so many titles. I don't know what it was with my other two books. Right from the beginning, I was like, Cinderland, Shiner, done. (laughs) This one, I just had such a hard time. For the longest time, I was just calling it the roofer novel in my head. (laughs) And so I would talk about it and say, well, the roofer novel, you know, to my friend is the roofer novel. And finally, a dear writing friend of mine was like, you have to stop calling it that. Stop calling it the roofer novel. (laughs) So it was called In the Land of Mercury at first. And then I tried and sons for a while. Literally, I had tried so many different things. And thank goodness for my editor who is so steady, like a straight arrow and said, let's just call it Mercury. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's that's perfect. And very astutely because Mercury is a character in the book in and of itself. So I, mm-hmm. I feel like we know that this is the town. We know what's happening in this town. Sort of this um, overview, like this little uh, snow yeah. globe of a town. So I, I... Absolutely. And I like the idea that my books, you know, you mentioned how one something in Mercury reminded you of Shiner. I really like the idea of my books being in conversation with each other and that you can sort of see the connective tissue between them because my books are super personal to me. I wish I could write about things that I have nothing to do with, but the best 
stuff that comes out of me is just some stuff that's really personal. So it's nice to for readers to be able to see the connections. And the, not just even in in the text, even the covers, they've, they've that same sort of yes. blue cover, which I love yes. that sky blue cover um, as we're me facing too. even more rain here in New York. And you are on tour right now with Mercury. Where is the best place for readers to follow along with you on social media? Um, I am on Instagram. So that's where I will post about my tour stops, all that sorts of thing. My handle is Burns Amy Joe. You can find me there. And there's a little placard right at the top that's pinned to the top that has my stops and all of that. So um, I love meeting readers. It's a, one of the best things about finishing a book. So if people are able to come out, I would love to meet them. And of course, the book just came out. So I'm going to ask the question, anything you can share about what you're working on next? So I find writing is pretty grounding for me. So I like to keep at it. I have a few different projects going right now. I'm doing a little bit of screenwriting and then I'm trying to decide between two or three different ideas for a book and they all have potential, but they all have problems. So I'm going to fight with myself for a little bit longer before I decide. <laughs> well, we're going to be here for whatever you do next. That is for sure. Any book any book recommendations that you have that you would like to share with listeners? Well, let me tell you, I will say I decided this year, 2024, I usually set a quota or a goal for myself of 50 books to read throughout the year. And I've done this for the past few years and I've really enjoyed it, but I thought maybe 2024 will be a year where I pick a few very long books and really read them slowly. So I just started my first one and it's East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And I'm loving it so far. I mean, I'm super intimidated by how long it is, but again, that's, I'm trying to just say, if you just enjoy the journey, right. you know, what right. would it be like? Every sentence goes for it. Now, listen, and I tried Graves of Wrath and couldn't get through it. So I don't know. <laughs> this was years ago that I tried it, but it's got this really epic feel, but he does the same thing where it's like, he just will capture a character in a single line and woo, it's a knockout. So I'm enjoying, I'm only 50 pages in. There's still like another 700. I was just going to say, how that's, far in are you? Now. <laughs> I love that challenge. I never thought to do that. Maybe if you are kind enough to say yes to a second podcast with us, you'll let us know what you thought of East of Eden. <laughs> I will. I would love to do it. And hopefully I'll be done, be done with it. I say, I'd love to come back. <laughs> that is awesome. Oh my goodness. Okay, listeners, you have all the information. I'll put the link where you can find her on the podcast page for the episode. And I'll provide all the links where you can find and you must find Shiner and Cinderland. Listeners, remember, Mercury is on shelves everywhere. Grab a copy. It's published by the fabulous folks at Celadon Books. Amy Jo Burns, thank you so much for joining us on Top Shelf. And I I know I asked already, but I really do hope you'll come back for whatever comes next. I would love to. This has been a blast. I will come anytime you want to have me. This is amazing. I'm so grateful that you were here. Listeners, I'm grateful you are joining us today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library wherever you find most podcasts for the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library. Check out our website at merricklibrary.org. Thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmier, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to find us on your top shelf. 